Exodus 24, 15 through 18. Then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. To God be the glory, a song that I have sung all of my life, but for many years, I'm not sure that I fully appreciated or understood what exactly it all entailed. I'm not sure that I still fully understand or appreciate all that it entails, but it's our aim and our goal this morning to try to shed some more light on it, to try to help us as we have just sung that song to be able to understand more of what we mean by that and more of what is expected of us when we are given that command. And so it's our intent this morning in five parts to examine or think about this idea of, or the phrase, to God be the glory. To God be the glory. First this morning, let's appreciate its meaning. Let's appreciate its meaning. As we just considered Exodus chapter number 24, we'll get there here in just a moment, the scripture reading that was read a moment ago. Perhaps a a clearer understanding of the phrase, to God be the glory, might be in our modern vernacular, what we might say something more along the lines of, give God the glory. But even still, how do I give something to God that he already possesses that we just read about in Exodus chapter 24? So let's think, what, what is glory Exactly. What do we mean by that? Glory might be uh, termed as, a, as an abstract idea, an abstract term. So it's something that may be in, in some ways hard to pin down and specifically describe or, or to define. We might use words like majesty or beauty or splendor, riches, all things that can be possessed by humans, but there's something distinct and different about God's glory. As we just said, you might see scriptures throughout the Bible that indicate or reference to some ascribing glory to some man or some entity, but there's something distinct or something different or something far transcendent about God's glory that he possesses. Understanding the link between holiness and glory is also essential. In Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 3, As Isaiah had this vision of the throne room of God, he saw God, and it was spoken of God as though he were holy, holy, holy. The word holiness carries with it this idea of being separate or distinct in character or nature, and God's goodness and greatness transcends all other beings, and therefore he is holy. But if you were to look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 3, we might expect, as the uh, as it goes on, as that phrase goes on to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, we might accept, expect it to say something along the lines of, the world is full of his holiness. But instead it says, the world is full of his glory. The world is full of his glory. And so we see, in, in a sense, a connection between God's holiness and his glory. In an attempt to define 
the glory of God. One man put it this way. The glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. It's the manifestation of God's holiness, God's glory, we might say, is that. That is, what we see of God's goodness and all of his love and all of his mercy and all of his compassion and all of his truth and all of the characteristics and attributes of God, if we were to to combine them into one, it might be this manifestation of glory as we are to understand it. God's holiness and perfection is so transcendent that it's like uh, unlike anything else. One of the earliest accounts of God's glory is, as we just mentioned a moment ago, is the scripture reading from Exodus chapter 24. Turn with me there again and notice what is spoken of regarding God's glory, what it was like. Then Moses, in verse number 15, went up into the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out in the midst of the cloud And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of a mountain, of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, was God's glory a literal, physical representation of fire upon that mountain? I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. It seems as though there's that, that inference or that, that suggestion that it was like a consuming fire. In other words, I don't know that there's anything that could accurately, completely describe God's glory in some physical representation of what we might be able to perceive as human beings. Much like how we try to, to grapple with and wrap our minds around the, the Trinity or the Godhead, how there's no distinct, exact analogy that we could use otherwise it would be God. Similarly, when we think about the glory of God, how could we describe the glory of God other than it is all of the things we just described a minute ago? That is His goodness and His greatness and His majesty and His love and His power. All of these things wrapped up into one and it would be that physical manifestation of that if that were, if that were some way to, to explain it. But then a few chapters over in Exodus chapter number 33, Moses is on top of the mountain, and he makes this interesting request of God. Turn with me there, Exodus chapter number 33, beginning in verse number 18. And Moses said to God, please show me your glory. Then he, being God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Again, some sort of connection there between God's goodness and his glory. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Again, that idea, the concept of graciousness, and again, in a moment, his compassion, all these things connected to his glory. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand while I pass. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, my back, but my face shall not be seen. And so we see that there's something special and distinct and transcendent and above all other when we think about the glory of God, we might wrap it up into three distinct ways and answer the question, what does to God be the glory mean? Especially when God already possesses it, as we said. Number one, we might say 
the basic principle is that to glorify God does not mean to make someone glorious because God is already glorious. Rather, it is something like this, that we see him as glorious, that we savor him as glorious, and that we celebrate him as glorious, that we recognize the glory that he possesses. It's not that we're saying we're going to give God glory in the sense that that I have glory that he doesn't have and I'm going to hand it over to him, but rather that we recognize the glory that he possesses. And then secondly, we might explain it this way, May God's glory not be diminished by anything that I or anyone else does in this life. May I see him as glorious, to God be the glory. May I not do anything that diminishes his glory in my life, to God be the glory. And then thirdly, may I return any glory that I might rob him of by offering my praise to him with my lips and my life as a sacrifice. Not as though I could take anything from God because he's all-powerful but rather that in the eyes and minds of other men, that I might, if I were to rob God of his glory in those circumstances, to God be the glory, may I not do that. May I avoid that at all costs. And so appreciate its meaning first and foremost this morning, but secondly, accept the command. Accept the command. The the idea of giving God the glory to say to God be the glory isn't just some nice idea or sentiment or something that is just some sort of, of suggestion. Rather, it's an explicit command, an explicit command. In the middle of a discussion about whether a Christian should eat meat sacrificed to idols, Paul makes this very poignant and and universal command that is applied to every situation in our lives. He says, whether you eat or whether you drink. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. But it's an expectation that no matter what you do in your life, in every circumstance, that you ought to be seeking to bring glory to God. What is your life about? Is it about what you accomplish? How many degrees you have? How much wealth you acquire? According to Paul, through inspiration of God, the sum total of our life, everything that our life should be about, everything that we should be doing and striving for and longing for and and trying to accomplish is to bring glory to God, is to make sure that God gets the glory. And so accept the command. Accept the command. But number three, acknowledge its importance. Acknowledge the validity of the plea. Acknowledge that God deserves the glory. In our reading this week, in our reading in sync program, we examined five different chapters. Genesis 1, Exodus uh, number 15, uh, Psalm 8, Psalm 111, and Nahum chapter 1. In each one of these, we, we examined or we saw that, that God's glory, or God deserves the glory, or, or God possesses the glory because in Genesis chapter number 1, He is Creator. He is Creator. He created all things that we see, and so naturally, the very some total of the fact that he is the creator deserves the fact deserves our glory to be brought to him deserves that we ought to recognize him as glorious but secondly not only is he creator but he's deliverer in exodus chapter number 15 as we think about the fact that he looks out for his people he provides for them this chapter records the song of moses and the children of israel after they cross the red sea and how in that moment after they have been delivered from the bondage of egypt for over 400 years they're now standing free on the other side of the red sea and they couldn't help but express god is glorious god is great god is amazing because he is deliverer 
He's creator. He's deliverer. He is savior. Psalm chapter number eight. He is love. God deserves the glory because of his mindfulness of man. Because he looks down on his creation that he made with his voice, that he spoke into existence. And he doesn't just look at it and say, wow, that's pretty great, but he's mindful of you and me. Above all else, what is man that you are mindful of him? And he is so mindful that he offered his son on our behalf. He's savior. He's creator. He's deliverer. He's savior. He's, Psalm 111, holier. He's holier. He's righteous, verse 3. He's gracious and compassionate, verse 4. He's mindful and reliable, verse 5. He's giving in verse 6. He's just in verse 7. He's upright in verse 8. He's holy in verse 9. God is holier. But then, in Nahum chapter number 1, not only is God creator, deliverer, savior, holier, he is governor. Governor. In other words, he is in charge. He is in charge of everything in this world. He's in charge of what happens in the end. God deserves the glory because though he is merciful and loving, God is also powerful and fierce. He is powerful and fierce, taking vengeance upon the wicked, especially those that plot against the Lord. And so God deserves the glory for these five reasons, but not just those five reasons. We could spend an hour, we could spend a day, we could spend a year trying to enumerate why God deserves the glory, but that's just a taste. But number four, the time that we have remaining, I want to spend the most time on this. We need to ask, how do we accomplish it? We appreciate the meaning, we are accepting the command, we, we acknowledge its importance, but we need to ask, how do I accomplish making sure that God gets the glory? How do I give God the glory? Number one, by confessing my sin and worthlessness. By confessing my sin and worthlessness. In Joshua chapter number 7, verse number 19, Right after the children of Israel took Jericho, the command was not to take anything of the spoils. But remember what Achan did? He took of it. He kept some back. And in in Joshua chapter number 7, verse number 18, he's approached and this is what is said to him, to Achan. I'm sorry, uh, Joshua chapter 7, verse 19, it says to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan had hid the spoils that he had taken. And as he's approached, he said, Give God the glory and tell us what you've done. In other words, recognize the sin that you've committed, recognize that you have put yourself ahead of God and His commands. And in order to make it right, in order to give glory to God, you need to fess up to it and own up to it. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we are to give glory to God, if we are to be able to experience the glory in the future of, uh, of God in heaven, We have to first recognize our sin and worthlessness is separating us from that glory. But secondly, how do I give glory to God? How do I give God the glory? By making my life about God and not about me. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
Are you seeking your own glory by speaking on your own authority, by trying to to do what, what you think is best, or are you doing what Jesus did? He said the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood, Jesus speaking of himself. Jesus was all about the glory of God. Jesus was all about making sure that all of us recognize that God deserves that glory. Is that the same thing that could be said about me? In Exodus chapter 10 and verse number 3, when Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Their point was, recognize God is in control. Recognize that he deserves the glory. Stop putting yourself above God and humble yourself and recognize God as the Lord. Do you make your life about God or about yourself? How do I give God the glory? By always giving God the credit. The apostles had some pretty awesome things that they could do as they were given the miraculous powers of the first century. And you know what? There could have been some folks that looked at them and said, those guys are pretty great, and I want to praise them, and I want to worship them. In fact, it happens. We'll talk about it in just a moment. But what do they say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You know, this might be the one that we struggle with the most. By taking the credit that we don't deserve, instead of giving it to God. Man, that was a great sermon that you just preached. His response should be, to God be the glory, because I hope that you saw that God is worth that glory. Man, that was, a, that was a great thing that you did for that person whenever you served them last week. No, it's not about me. It's about God getting the glory. Always give God the credit. You know, sometimes I've heard people say that, and I've kind of grown at those times in my, in my ignorance and in my, in my weakness, I have grown tired of hearing that phrase because it almost seemed, I don't know, just kind of an offhand reference. Not anymore. That's my prayer for myself. To God be the glory. May God get the credit. But number four, by not seeking glory from men, piggybacking off of what we just said about the apostles and the awesome things that they could have done in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-6, through But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Do you seek glory from men? We spent a large amount of time the last few months talking about the uh, Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter number 6, not doing things to be seen of men. How do I give God the glory? Root that out of your life. Don't do things to be seen of men. Acts chapter 10, verse 25 through 26, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped Peter. But Peter lifted up and said, Stand, I too am but a man. Don't seek glory from men. How do I give God the glory? Number five, by showing gratitude for every single blessing that I possess. You remember in Luke chapter number 17 when the, the 10 uh, lepers were healed, but only one came back to thank God? This is how the King James translates uh, this particular uh, verse. Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this one foreigner? 
When he came back to give thanks, he was giving glory to God because he was wanting to give God the credit. He wasn't seeking glory for men, and he wanted to show gratitude for every blessing that he possessed. How do I give God the glory? By accepting, number six, that God can use my life for his glory, even in ways I might not prefer. Look at John chapter 11 with me. Turn there in your Bibles. You remember John chapter number 11? If, if, you're, uh, if you're funny, you might remember John chapter 11 because in John chapter 11 is verse number 35, and that's the, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? And so you keep that in the back of your mind, but then it reminds you, okay, well, Jesus wept. Why did he weep? Because in the, that was in the situation in which Lazarus died. But go all the way back to the beginning of chapter number 11. John chapter 11 Verse number three, therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, that is the sisters of Lazarus, saying, Lord, behold, he, that is Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but notice, but for the glory of God, that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. You know, sometimes our life might not go exactly the way that we wanted or planned We don't know for sure, but sometimes years later we may look back and we might see the providence of God working in that situation. It may not have been the the turnout that we expected or desired or wanted, but you know what? God may have been using that circumstance in your life to bring glory to him. How many of you can attest to that? How many of you have seen that in your own life? And so to give God the glory and answering that question, I need to accept that God sometimes can use my life for his glory. Who would have thought that someone dying, Lazarus dying, would bring glory to God? Jesus knew. He saw into the future. He knew that raising of Lazarus would bring glory to God and would ultimately glorify the Son of God. Number seven, by seeking true happiness in the Lord, by not glorying in anything else but glorying in the Lord alone, Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man say in his might, nor nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. How do I give God the glory? Number eight, by growing. By growing. Philippians chapter number one, Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ so that you get that new job promotion. So that other people look at you and say, Wow, what a great person. Why are you growing? No, it's not for those reasons. Paul says, to the glory and praise of God. And finally, by being a faithful church, do you realize that when the church today doesn't look like the church that Jesus purchased and built, that we are robbing God of his glory? We are diminishing the glory of God in other people's eyes. That's why it's so important to hold the doctrine. That's why it's so important to, to do things that are according to Scripture Not because we want to just draw lines and divide over certain things, but rather because God has established these things and God purchased the church with his blood and people see in the church of our Lord the glory of God 
And through us, God should receive the glory. Finally, as we close, not only should we ask about this meaning and ask how we ought to accomplish it and and how we ought to maybe accept the command and and all these things, but finally, we should anticipate its fullness. Anticipate its fullness. If we give God the glory now, we'll have the privilege of experiencing the fullness of His glory later. In Exodus chapter 33, as we read earlier, Moses' face ultimately shone because of his experience with God and his glory, but he was limited in that moment, just hiding behind the rock. And yet his face shone. In in Acts chapter 7 and verse number 55, as Stephen was being stoned, he looks up into heaven and gets a glimpse of the glory of God. But Paul promises in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 4, that faithful Christians will get to experience the glory of God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. What does that look like in heaven? In Revelation, some 12 times it's spoken of that God is receiving the glory in God's vision, of, uh, in God's, uh, vision that was given to John of heaven. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, we see that God's glory is so amazing and bright that there is no need for the sun or the moon, but that His glory gives it light day and night. It's always there. That's how powerful God's glory is. That's what we'll get to experience in its fullness. It's so amazing God's glory is that Revelation 21, verse 11 says that God's glory is like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. God's glory is that amazing. It's something that we ought to anticipate in its fullness. Yes, we can experience it now in the sense that we recognize God's goodness and mercy and love and truth and all the things we've expressed. But ultimately, eventually, we're going to get to experience God's glory and its fullness. Don't you want to experience that? Don't you want to have that full experience of God's glory? Then, God, then give God the glory now so you can experience it later. If you're not a Christian, then listen to the words of Joshua to Achan. Confess your sin, and in the process you'll be glorifying God. Deny yourself and turn to God. Repent of your sin. Confess the sweet name of Jesus. Have your sins washed away in baptism. But those of you that are Christians... As one in whom the Spirit dwells, remember, you are bought with a price. Paul says, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 20. If there's anything that we can do for you, we ask that you come as together we stand and as we sing. Jesus, I come.